are preparing to start tonight a whole series of lectures upon a fundamental text of yoga, the famous, the celebrated Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is a rather difficult text. We are going to do this in association with some meditations upon Ajna Chakra. It would be a good idea if before coming attending these lectures you would meditate a bit on Ajna <coughs> Chakra to open it, to increase your understanding. I'm going to start with a consecration for this whole cycle of lectures. And after this consecration I will spend a little more time, a few more minutes in meditation, meditating on Ajna Chakra, to open Ajna Chakra, after which finally I will start talking, giving the introductory speech and the first commentaries on this fundamental theogic text. So I'll start with consecration and a short meditation. I'm consecrating now. I will say a few introductory words about this great issue. Uh, Yoga Sutra is one of the great monuments of yoga. It is perhaps the most uh, unanimously acknowledged text of yoga. In India, in various ways, there are so many traditions of yoga, so many schools, so many orientation, yoga which is more of the Vedantin type, yoga which is more of the Tantric type, yoga which belongs to this kind of school, to that kind of school. And therefore, almost each orientation has got their own texts, their own tradition, because they emphasize on different aspects of practice. While the devoted people performing karma yoga, they are insisting on texts like Bhagavad Gita, uh, the tantric practitioners would insist on texts like the Agamas, the classical tantric texts, Uh, The Vedantins would uh, insist on the texts of Shankaracharya and so on. But in the middle of all these super complex ensemble of teachings of yoga, there is one text which is kind of sympathetic to all of them, acknowledged by all of them, a kind of a core text of yoga, and that is precisely the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali is a very peculiar type of text because in essence 
It defines yoga in general. It's a general text about yoga. And at the same time, it promotes a specific form of yoga, which is a yoga of the mind, which is a yoga of the third eye. Today, uh, this form of yoga is generally called Raja Yoga. So Patanjali's type of yoga has been codified as Raja Yoga, which will be a yoga which is predominantly relying on the arousing of Ajna Chakra, <coughs> on the capabilities which come together with this, the power of discrimination, uh, the power of the mind, and of course of all the yoga practices which come together with that, such as concentration of the mind, uh, withdrawal of the senses from external disturbance, uh, meditation, and of course, uh, last but not least, samadhi, the different forms of active ecstatic states or superconsciousness, depending how the authors, different authors translate this concept in various ways. So, one over the other, uh, Yoga Sutra is somewhere at the crossroad of many paths in yoga, and uh, practitioners of almost every single orientation type of yoga, they find some sympathy with Yoga Sutra, uh, and they find that they can uh, always quote it, give some teaching related to it, rely on its scriptural authority, and so on. Yoga Sutra is a text which is as it's almost included in its name because people seldom say just Yoga Sutra they usually say the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali the name of the author of this text is almost embedded in the text itself Patanjali is a very very mysterious personality of yoga uh, the truth is that in a scholarly way it is not even known exactly when he lived most of the non-scientific sources, they tend to place Patanjali somewhere at the time of the Buddha, of Gautama the Buddha, some 500 years BC. The more accepted theories place uh, Patanjali some two, three hundred years before Christ, and actually, eventually, the scholars have demonstrated that that text, which is called Yoga Sutra, surely must have been written somewhere actually in the text in the year in the centuries two three after christ in anno domini therefore the year two or three hundred a.d which makes the text uh, newer than many people would like in india it's almost a title of glory to say that the text or a teaching is really really old however in a scholarly way the scholars have a talent in sometimes killing the dreams and the phantasmagoria of this kind. They have demonstrated pretty conclusively that this author called Patanjali must have lived some two, three hundred years after the year zero in the Western culture. This has a special significance, actually, because it shows that Patanjali, composing his text at a later date, thank you, uh, he has actually been inspired by multiple traditions. Remember that the, at the year 2300, not only the Buddhist teachings were ripe to the core in India, 
but at the same time even the Christian teaching had been backfiring on India through the life and teachings of the Apostle Thomas in the south of India and therefore uh, basically the sum total of esoteric teachings which were available at that time was formidable. At the at that time there was also a beginning of tantric teachings throughout India and the neighboring areas which makes that Yoga Sutra all in all is a quite evolved text of yoga because it already picks up from very rich traditions. Patanjali is actually the title of a minor caste of scholars in India and therefore there are many many Patanjalis in India scholars have discovered at least five, six or seven Patanjalis in the history of India some indeed as old as the Buddha some living uh, the third century BC and some living much later than this Patanjali that is why this Patanjali who is the author of the Yoga Sutra is actually called Maharshi Patanjali he has been given the title of Maharishi Maharshi to separate him from the others there is another gigantic Patanjali in Indian spirituality who is a commentator of Sanskrit grammar because for them the Sanskrit grammar was an integral part of their spirituality and spiritual teachings so all in all just let's make the long story short this Patanjali according to the scholars is coming from the second century and his teaching shows him to be not only a practical yogi because he has the direct practical understanding of some of the things which he teaches there is no doubt about that but at the same time he is a yogi with a great intellectual and philosophical power of course if he is credited with a path belonging to Ajna Chakra then automatically it would go without saying that he must have been pretty developed himself at this level therefore um, this is the approximate century, this is the approximate period of time from where this text is coming. In yoga around that time, especially after the Buddha, in Indian spirituality there appear many, many texts of yoga. The Yoga Sutra is just one of them, but somehow Patanjali has managed to sum up the most essential things of yoga and to find an, a presentation of yoga which would be non-controversial and join together the teachings of many schools. Actually scholars are telling us that in the Yoga Sutra we find a lot of Buddhist influences, for example the presentation of the morals and ethics, the famous Yama and Niyama, is actually very much inspired by the Buddhist morality, it is at the same time inspired by the Jain morality, the Jaina religion being even more puritanic and more strict from this standpoint, and uh, actually some scholars think that they can see all kind of other influences. Also, we have to say that in this text, this is this being one of the root texts of yoga, as I say, uh, Patanjali, Maharshi Patanjali, the author, is using a terminology which belongs very much to the Sankhya philosophy. Patanjali doesn't really bother to invent new words for yoga, and he actually presents concepts which are um, classical in the India of that time, of his century, and he uses terminology from Sankhya philosophy. For example, 
the concept of Atman, which in yoga we call the Supreme Self, and this Atman is a concept which is more a Vedantic concept, it is Shankaracharya who uses the concept of Atman, and some of the Tantric yogis like the Kashmir Shaivists and others, they use extensively the word Atman. In uh, Yoga Sutra you seldom find the word Atman, instead of Atman, rather Patanjali uses the duality, the terminology, Purusha Prakriti. He calls Atman Purusha, the metaphysical transcendent aspect, and the natural aspect, the manifested aspect, Prakriti, which is indeed a Sankhya terminology. Yes, there are differences. If any one of you is scholarly inclined and wants to split the hair on this, there are some differences between the terminology and the use of it with Sankhya, but uh, Patanjali didn't really care, apparently, too much about making scholarly distinctions. He simply borrowed the terminology, and he said that thing which we call the immortal spirit, which is immaterial, transcendent, that is Purusha, and that's the end of it. He just wanted to find names and terminology for those. And um, that is one characteristic. Then, besides the descriptions concerning the self, the Purusha, as expected, the Yoga Sutra is abounding in descriptions on the mind and the subconscious, the use of the mind and the different levels of mind and subconscious, and that is to be expected because this text is focusing a lot on Ajna Chakra, and since all the tattvas of the mind and the functions of the subconscious are related to Ajna Chakra, such an analysis is, of course, to be expected and is unavoidable, and uh, then as about the lower tattvas, all this function of the indriyas, sense organs, the five elements, and all these tattvas which are used even in Sankhya philosophy, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali doesn't bother too much, because they deal mostly with the reality analyzed from the standpoint of Ajna Chakra. Patanjali himself in later centuries has been considered by the commentators of uh, this text as an incarnation of Adishesha or Ananta, which is a mythological creature of Indian uh, mythology. Ananta or Adishesha is the primordial snake having some connections with Kundalini. It is actually one of the auxiliaries of Lord Vishnu. In Indian mythology, Lord Vishnu is sleeping on a coiled snake which is like a couch floating on the primordial ocean, and this primordial snake is Ananta or Adisesha. And uh, there is a, a tradition in India for the scholars following this lineage of uh, making consecration to Adisesha for the understanding, for the acquiring of this knowledge. I will not uh, insist too much on these things, fact is that Patanjali had a reputation which had been growing in his century and in the following centuries not much attention was given to Patanjali but later starting with the 7th century, 10th century and so on the more and more commentaries have been given to the Yoga Sutra and the more and more yoga schools who discovered that Yoga Sutra is convenient for them also uh, then the reputation of Patanjali increased by leaps and bounds the method of Patanjali, the so-called Ashtanga Yoga, became more and more 
developed attention, the Ashtanga Yoga in Patanjali terminology is not the same thing with the gymnastic forceful method of Ashtanga Yoga of today. That's just a superimposition of names there. So coming back to Patanjali, the theory has been increasing until Patanjali has been called a Rishi. He has been labeled a Maha Rishi, not just a Rishi, but one of the great Rishis and uh, people starting plastering uh, Patanjali with epithets like he had been reaching the ultimate liberation of the ultimate liberations and so on. A strictly objective analysis of the Yoga Sutra shows that actually Patanjali did not create anything new in yoga. He did not uh, uh, invent this yoga, that he is simply a compiler. He is the one who compiled it, organized it, put it on paper, so actually he doesn't claim any originality or creating it. He was no doubt a very organized mind and a great mind for the case. And at the same time, as you will see when we'll analyze the text, the ultimate yoga tradition, especially the forms of high tantric yoga of India and Tibet, they actually extend the range of spiritual accomplishments of the human being even higher than the range, than the range of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which for Patanjali sounds supreme. So what I am trying to say is that sometimes the reputation of Patanjali and of this text has been over-exaggerated because people could find a common denominator in this text, many yoga schools, and then for them Yoga Sutra was a kind of identity. They could define their own identity as yogis by referring themselves to Yoga Sutra and saying we practice yoga like in the Yoga Sutra. We practice yoga like in the Ashtanga method of Patanjali and so on. So thus, funny enough, uh, the Yoga Sutra became such a legendary text until it reached the proeminence of today where it would, where it would probably be the first yoga text that you ever think of when you are defining yoga when you want to talk about yoga. Now, remember that the text without commentaries is very, very difficult to understand because in Indian mystic literature, in Indian spiritual literature, sutras are nothing else but one-liners. You will see that most of the sutras in this text are made out of two, three, four, five words. And those words, although rich in meanings, they cannot express too much. The Yoga Sutra is composed out of such sutras. The commentators on Indian spirituality have actually called the sutras mnemonics. They are simply spiritual mnemonics. The sutras are mnemonic devices. You say the sutra and you remember a million things which that sutra wants to say, but which are actually not said directly. They are implied in, the, in between the lines. Therefore, the sutras of Patanjali, they are not meant to explain. They are not an exposition of yoga in totality. They are mnemonic devices which remind to a knower, to a person who is knowledgeable about yoga already, they remind to such person the main ideas or the main courses of ideas through which to define some essential issues in yoga. And it is for this reason that the text in itself is disappointingly meager. It contains 195 sutras, which means 195 lines. 
If you put one line on a line on a page, you probably can get 40-50 lines on a text. That would mean that Yoga Sutra all in totality, if you'd write it, it would be maximum five pages. How much can you define in five pages? Not so much, and that is why, of course, Yoga Sutra is relying on an oral tradition. It relies on the gigantic tradition of yoga. It, of course, relies on the meditation from Ajna Chakra so that you can see the implications and the mind connections of those things. And, uh, of course, because of this, a long history, there have been uh, created lots of commentaries to explain actually what Patanjali reminded through those mnemonic sutras of his. The text itself, as you are going to see in the next weeks, is made out of four chapters, which in Sanskrit language they are called divisions, they are called padas, and uh, the four padas or chapters of uh, Yoga Sutra are approximately equal. The scholars fight until today if those four chapters are the original chapters or the text was divided later in those chapters, if maybe there has been another division, there are scholars who have tried to find a division on smaller paragraphs of this text according to the subject which are being debated or approached or uh, announced in the text. Classically, the text is divided in four chapters, which are called the first of them Samadhi Pada, the chapter on Samadhi, the chapter on the spiritual enlightenment composed of 51 sutras, the second chapter called Sadhana Pada, the chapter on the spiritual practice. Sadhana means the actual practice which you do every day and which defines the style of practice made of 55 sutras. Then the chapter called Vibhuti Pada, which is related to the paranormal powers of mind which arise from this use of yoga, especially through the third eye text part of the text chapter which is a legendary one in yoga and which is made out of another 55 sutras and finally the last chapter announcing the condition of full enlightenment and again reminding the consequences of this yoga called Kaivalya Pada Kaivalya means actually pristine isolation speaking about this condition of Nirvana or Nirvikalpa or Kaivalya, as it is called here, as a kind of condition which is liberated from karma, liberated from all contingencies, liberated from the disturbing, uh, limitative action of some inferior forces. And uh, therefore, the final part is bringing us back to the pure spirit. There exist commentaries, and uh, I have written down here some of them, uh, I personally have witnessed probably more than 20 commentaries on the Yoga Sutra and I think historically there must exist over a hundred. At least in India there should be definitely more than 50. They, the big number of them starts after the 14th and 15th century. Until the 14th and 15th century there are a few, but those are the real big ones, the real legendary ones. The most important commentary to the Yoga Sutra was made is the legendary Yoga Bhasiya made by Vyasa, the famous Vyasa of India, which is again another controversial personality because this Vyasa is supposed to have written half of the mystical literature of India, 
but it was not written in the same century, so it's a guy who is supposed to have been lived over some 20 centuries of Indian mystical literature, which simply means there are several Vyasas. Vyasa is a title, almost a poetical title in Indian Sanskrit literature, and uh, there is a Vyasa, a famous Vyasa, who uh, wrote a commentary on the Yoga Sutra, which is the most, one of the most explicit ones, and uh, after that there is another great yogi, after a couple of centuries later, called Vachaspati Mishra, a very learned Brahman who wrote another fundamental con commentary called uh, the explicitation of the truth of Yoga Sutra. Besides that, there appear a few others. There is a famous Persian translation which has influenced the Persian religion already in those, the Farsi religion in those days. And uh, another one, there is even one made by a king, uh, I think his name is King Boja, made a king which is called the commentary of the King Boja, and so on. Um, remember that all those are secondary, you'll find many. There is a big controversy about a commentary which allegedly has been made by Shankaracharya himself in the 8th century. The One of the biggest philosophers, the great Vedantin of India, one of the greatest yogis, of the Middle Ages of India, Shankaracharya, better known as Adi Shankaracharya, apparently has made a commentary. There is a controversy until today if he made it or somebody else. And that commentary is, of course, um, also quoted as significant. Then there have been made other and other commentaries on the Yoga Sutra. Again, some of them very significant, some of them not so. After the 14th, 15th century, there are literally at least 10 major commentaries every century. So the number of them is increasing a lot towards modern times. And um, now that I said this, of course, I'm drawing for you here when I'm commenting the Yoga Sutra and presenting the Yoga Sutra for you here. I'm drawing from most of these commentaries, at least those which are accessible, available to me at this point, uh, to explicitate the meanings of the Yoga Sutra. Uh, what is very important, I'm drawing, when commenting on the Yoga Sutras, I'm actually drawing from the practical experience of yoga, which is most important. And I'm making here an attempt which is uh, very uh, bold in the commentaries of the Yoga Sutras because I am giving you here a commentary of the Yoga Sutras from the standpoint of the Agama Tantric style of yoga which means I'm commenting the Yoga Sutras with relevance to energies, chakras, the five bodies and all these things which are specifically uh, Tantric and which of course make the subject much much more clear because they reduce it to this engineering-like technology of Tantric Yoga in which everything is chakras, energies, nadis, and other such extremely precise things. That is why some things will be very fresh for you and they will have a very, very clear meaning. This is a pretty difficult uh, endeavor because the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, talking mostly about the mind, it is talking about realities which from the standpoint of the five bodies are located at the level of Manomaya Kosha and Vijnana Maya Kosha, the astral body and the mental body, with seldom references 
to the etheric body and the physical body, such as the input of senses and some other minor factors, minor for Patanjali, minor from the standpoint of Patanjali, uh, and with occasional references to Ananda, Mayakosha, and the spiritual reality, which is beyond that. To be able to express the realities of the astral body and mental body in perfectly rational terminology like in Tantra is actually a difficult thing which hasn't been done properly until now and uh, therefore I'm going to reveal some of these things for you in this commentary that we are doing here. Finally, remember that uh, ultimately the yoga in the style of Patanjali and kind of this Patanjalization of yoga has gone to the level where people simply announce themselves as I am a follower of Patanjala Yoga. Patanjala Yoga has become almost like a style or it means some sort of main trend or some sort of orthodoxy in yoga. The orthodox yoga is supposed to be some sort of Patanjala Yoga, uh, therefore Ashtanga Yoga grouped according to those eight levels. Well, it is enough of a presentation. I hope you got the point. We are going to analyze a yoga which, because of its relationship with Ajna Chakra, is very powerful. All of you who have been in yoga for a while, you know that the yogis of India and Tibet have been particularly in love with this Ajna Chakra, and the technology of Ajna Chakra is perhaps the strongest. You do not find so many techniques for Svadhisthana Chakra, when it comes to, I don't know, techniques for activating Vishuddha Chakra, there are perhaps not so many and not so explicit, but when it comes to uh, Ajna Chakra, the technology of the training of the mind, of focusing, of concentration, of meditation, of insight, of samadhi, of clairvoyance, and the development of all those mental things, it occupies the primary position. In many forms of yoga, exactly even as in Yoga Sutra itself, there is no emphasis on healing, there is no emphasis on vitality or things like this. These are things which you learn by doing asanas from Hatha Yoga and practicing Ayurveda and doing, uh, you know, Kundalini and these kind of things, which fortunately in this school we do. But uh, else... Ajna Chakra and controlling the whole process of yoga from Ajna Chakra is a characteristic both of Indian yoga and of Tibetan yoga. They all of them were fascinated by this. And therefore, this Patanjali yoga is focused or is centered exactly on this aspect of kind of centering the whole of yoga from the standpoint of Ajna Chakra. This has a great advantage because it's like, hey, I'm in control. I control the whole universe with the mind because the whole universe is nothing else but mind. Remember what you learned in the very first month of yoga, that the whole universe is just a Shambhavi mudra, is just a mental creation of the creator. Therefore, controlling the mind is like controlling the very intimate springs of reality itself. But it has a downside as well. Because at a yoga which is coming mostly from the direction of Ajna Chakra, some elements, like some elements which are so specifically Indian, such as devotion, bhakti, and things like this, they are absent. Therefore, a Patanjala yoga 
Raja Yoga, this Ashtanga Yoga in the style of Patanjali and Yoga the way it is described in the Patanjali Yoga Sutra can be defined by some people as dry. It's a dry form of yoga. There is a lot about controlling, focusing, self-discipline, having a life of focusing on ajna and this like this, but then there is like no juice to it. And those people didn't want any juice at all because they considered that any juice in life is just a distraction from the main goal. Therefore, their yoga, the Patanjali yoga, is an ascetic form of yoga. The archetype of the yogis, and uh, this has been borrowed so easily from Shivaism, or the Shiva, the Shaiva tradition, has so easily borrowed this. Here is an example of where this goes. Shiva himself was uh, full of sorrow, because uh, his beloved uh, Parvati, uh, she had uh, committed self-immolation, it's a legend, uh, a complicated story, I'm not going to take it all, but anyhow, Shiva had lost his concert, and Shiva being extremely profound in his uh, feeling in this direction, he was kind of mourning Parvati, and this means that he went on the funeral pyre where she had been burned, and where she had been reduced to ashes, and he was sitting there, and he committed himself to thousands of years of asceticism. He was sitting there and meditating, naked like some of the Babas of India, smeared with ashes, sitting in the cremation ground and meditating. And for him there did not exist anything else. He was the archetypal ascetic. And then the thing was that his beloved Parvati decided to incarnate again in this world, because she wanted to be with her beloved Shiva under a manifested form again. But Shiva was so absorbed in his metaphysical meditation that he actually did not feel this, he, don't, he did not perceive this. And when Parvati became of age and she became a grown-up woman, now she had the task of shaking this guy from his meditation and telling him, I'm here, I'm back, uh, you know, and let's get back to... Uh, our relationship. But how do you do to get uh, such an ascetic out of his meditation? So Parvati thought about using a classical means, which means getting uh, the cooperation of the Indian Cupido or Eros. The Indian Eros or Cupido is the famous Kama, Kama Deva, like in Kama Sutra, the god of desire. The god of desire is a guy who shoots arrows to the human heart, only that his arrows have the tips made of flowers. So when his arrows hit your heart, you are full of desire and love. And that's actually one of the characteristics of the human life. So little innocent Kama tried to shoot uh, one of his uh, intoxicating arrows to Shiva to kind of... But you cannot really do that to somebody who meditates on Ajna Chakra and who is way too powerful to clairvoyant and too tough and too dry as well for being subjected to this. So the result was that Shiva in his meditation noticed the intention of Kama, who was just about to shoot one of his pathetic arrows to him, and Shiva turned his third eye on him and burned him to ashes, like he would have had a laser beam in his third eye. And thus poor Kama 
had been reduced to ashes, had been dematerialized and sent out of existence because Shiva burned him. This is the path of the third eye. The, the third eye is not a joking place. Shiva had no sense of humor. He was kind of, well, what? Zang. You know, it's kind of, there is no sense of humor, there is no tolerance, there is no, it's kind of just the third eye and a laser beam, and that's the end of it. And therefore, you can see from this approach that actually this is the path of Ajna Chakra, is a path which is dry, rather Vedantin, connected to Jnana Yoga, a path which is tough, ascetic, made of extremely tough forms of meditation, and in which all these things about, oh, let's get a little bit of Muladhara, let's heal our digestion and work a little bit on Manipura, let's open our heart and be more devotional, and this, from the standpoint of Ajna Chakra, these things are completely insignificant. Not that that is necessarily good, because the human being is an image of the universe, it's a microcosm. And the human being is created with seven chakras, not just with one chakra, this one. That's why when the human being is created with a muladhara and a anahata and whatever, those chakras are there with a reason and they create a complete human being, which of course Shiva archetypally was, but at that time he was just working exclusively on Ajna chakra, and that was it. So what I am trying to say is that this path of Ajna Chakra has definitely got some strengths and it is one of the fascinating things of yoga, this enormous power of those who have a big Ajna Chakra and which can cut through everything, this kind of incredible discrimination and insight of the mind, but at the same time it is presenting a path which is a bit tough. That is why modern people, especially when you are following a tantric path in which you work on all the chakras and you develop a lot of things, automatically when you look at the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, you take it with a pinch of salt because you know that this needs to be combined with other things from yoga, that it is not the only thing. While some people would consider Yoga Sutra of Patanjali as the absolute manual handbook of yoga, other yogis would say, no, no, this is an excellent manual for Ajna Chakra Yoga, but when it comes to other things in yoga, you need to consult other texts, other orientations of yoga, and so on. Finally, the last thing to be said before we start analyzing the text, just a little bit of it tonight, is the fact that uh, funny enough, many people say, what would they, why would they choose Ajna Chakra and why would they not choose Sahasrara? For your understanding, I would like to remind, and perhaps tonight to make it more clear than ever has been made into your beginner yoga courses, that Ajna Chakra is the highest of the chakras, because Sahasrara is not a chakra. I hope you remember that. The fundamental text about the chakras in the Laya Yoga tradition is called Sat Chakra Nirupana, which means the description of the six chakras, not seven. There are six chakras out of which the highest is Ajna, and then there is Sahasrara, which is something entirely different. To show you how far this goes, there are orientations of yoga, especially in um, Tibetan yoga, 
But some forms of yoga in India, they don't even speak about Sahasrara. They say you enter in Ajna Chakra and up here is the answer. It's like Sahasrara is a package deal which comes with Ajna. Ajna and Sahasrara are put together and Ajna is the highest chakra and when you get over with it, you will discover some sort of uh, bonus, something additional to the six chakras, which comes from reaching completion of everything, which is like the cherry on top of the cake, which is the final gift or bonus, and which is Sahasrara or the divine consciousness in itself. Even in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, as to give an example of a classical old text, you do not find any reference to Sahasrara. It's true, Bhagavad Gita doesn't speak about the chakras. But when it speaks about technology, this is one thing which uh, Krishna has to say about technology. He says, such a yogi should sit on a dais with the legs crossed, and he should meditate, and uh, he should focus in the middle of the forehead, and focus all the energy of the breath there, and if in the moment of death he does this, he will exit and never come back to this miserable world, and blah, blah, and blah, blah, and blah, blah. He says Ajna Chakra. Ajna Chakra is mentioned in Bhagavad Gita, but Sahasrara is not mentioned. Therefore, remember that for many yogis, Ajna Chakra was like enough. It was already starting things uh, in a spiritual standpoint. I remind one thing which I read just the other day, when I read some w testimonies from Ramakrishna Paramahamsa himself. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said when Kundalini is reaching at this level, and he showed the Ajna Chakra, then one enters in Samadhi, there is only a thin veil between the individual self and the universal self, and one enters Samadhi. And therefore, what I am saying here is clear. The states of Samadhi start with Ajna Chakra. They are forms of enlightenment and liberation which already occur at the level of Ajna Chakra. They are forms of voids, forms of mind realization, which are already at the level of Ajna Chakra and which can give already high spiritual accomplishment. And Sahasrara is even more than that. Sahasrara is like something even more amazing, but mentioned more seldom in the yogic literature. It is especially the tantric literature which wants to put things under the right perspective in a more engineering way, which says, actually, if we are to be truly, truly accurate, Behind Ajna Chakra there is also this center on top of the head which is actually something else in itself and which is the final answer ultimately. And therefore remember that for the yogis of India and Tibet Ajna Chakra was a chakra of enlightenment, a chakra of spiritual realization besides being a chakra of mind and mental power and therefore Ajna Chakra already contains in it the seeds of spiritual realization, samadhi, and enlightenment, and somehow it contains in it the bridge towards Sahasrara. It's like Sahasrara will almost follow, not, again, I'm not saying that it does automatically, but there will be a, almost a kind of close neighborhood or a close relationship from Ajna to Sahasrara. That is why some things are not even mentioned uh, clearly for Sahasrara, but for Ajna. It is very significant, and here I am anticipating something, 
which I comment more broadly in the yoga initiations when I give the initiation for the Ajna Chakra throughout our regular yoga courses, that the highest mantra praised by yogis, and you will see even Yoga Sutra mentions it, and praised by Bhagavad Gita, by Upanishads, and so much mystical literature of India, is none other than the legendary mantra Aum, which we can uh, reveal this to you at this point. Uh, this legendary mantra Aum is, according to the classical yoga, nothing else but the Bija mantra, the most classical mantra of Ajna Chakra. And therefore, what if the most spiritual thing and the reality is actually the Bija mantra of Ajna, then what can we say about Sahasrara, which is even beyond that, or at least which seems to be higher in terms of its location and in terms of being a global reality. That is why, all in all, making the long story short again, Ajna Chakra is for them very important, and the path of Ajna Chakra has definitely many advantages, and uh, if you know how to take it with a pinch of salt and to harmonize it, with more devotion, with more energy, with more other things from other chakras, then definitely this path can become powerful and significant. This being said, here are a few introductory sutras. We are starting, obviously, with the first chapter, which is called Samadhi Pada, the chapter on Samadhi. You are going to discover that that's a pretty general thing and many, many other things are mentioned in this chapter. It's the introductory one which describes the background. Samadhi, of course, designates the contemplative state, the perfect balance, the freedom. It represents a positioning of the consciousness in the state of stability that ensures this objective, unbiased reflection of the universe in one's consciousness, and the knowledge preserves this balance. So, Samadhi, uh, as you'll discover, of course, is of many kinds. Uh, Patanjali has a whole theory about many types of Samadhi. Perhaps when we'll reach to that, I'll make a diagram to sh so that you can see that Patanjali speaks up till 12 different types of Samadhi. And now are coming the sutras. Some of these sutras are extremely simple and eloquent through themselves, and they just make the link to the next sutra, and they don't say perhaps so much. Some of them are amazingly rich in their implications, and some of the sutras open a whole commentary for each sutra, because almost some sutras define a whole chapter in yoga by themselves. The first sutra in itself is a bit of an explosive one, and uh, Vachaspati Mishra has made a huge commentary onto this one. It seems some yogi commentators, and those of you who know Kashmir Shaivism, you remember that Abhinavagupta did the same kind of thing. When they hit the first sutra or shloka of a text, suddenly they become prolific, and they start writing like there is no tomorrow, like they will have to cover the whole subject just in the commentary of the first sutra, because they probably believe in the dictum that uh, strong beginnings are meaning that the work is half done, well begun is half done, and therefore uh, they have this energy of the beginning. Anyhow, I'm reading for you the Sanskrit sutra, just for curiosity, uh, if I would have to go really far, I would write each and every one of them on the board. It's unnecessary. You can find copies. 
and one day when these conferences will be typed down, they will be typed with the text, so those who will want to have it as reference, they will have the possibility to have there the Sanskrit words also written. The first sutra is made of no more than three words, which are Atha, Yoga, Nusa, Shasanam. And uh, basically it means now, and it doesn't even have a verb, it should say now comes, now follow, now there follow, instructions into yoga, the presentation of yoga. It says now we're going to talk about yoga. Now follows, well, uh, it sounds as a completely introductory. Okay, like let's get over verse 1 and let's get to verse 2 and say what is this instruction about yoga. Okay, the guy made his introduction. It's not as simple as that. The commentators have found a lot of stuff to say about the first, this very first verse. Uh, why does uh, Patanjali use the verb now? Atta means now, therefore, and which means that these instructions on yoga are actually in connection with some previous instruction. It says, and now, I'll talk about yoga. Okay, what did you talk about before? If now you are talking about yoga, it means I'm coming to yoga right now, but until now there has been something else. And therefore, uh, this word has actually been used in the Brahma Sutras and other fundamental texts of Indian spirituality from Vedanta. And therefore, this word now is taken by some commentators. Their opinion is that it has been used in order to emphasize the necessity of qualifying on oneself for this yoga with Hatha Yoga, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga and other preparatory systems. Which means, yes, you know about Bhagavad Gita and Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, which is all over the place, maybe Hatha Yoga, and now I'm going to speak about the Patanjala Yoga, the Raja Yoga, the mental yoga. So it's like, first of all, it says, hey, this is not the first step. Many yoga gurus join this view and they say, actually, if somebody wants to start directly with Patanjali Yoga, it's a bit abrupt, it's a bit tough, because people don't have such discriminative power and such extraordinary power of concentration of the mind to go into this all the way. That's why the fact that it says now, it actually implies the necessity of a preparation, and that is why in this school we believe that by doing Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, and all the other things, you actually become more and more capable of meditation, concentration, and those things. Also, Atha, the word now, is actually traditionally in some of the Upanishads from India, a word of blessing. It's the text is starting with a word which is auspicious. It is a word which at the same time gives a blessing. So it's like blessing, now we are going to talk about yoga. There is no word in English which contains both the syntax now and at the same time the word blessing. That's why the word is actually intranslatable and it has to be translated by explanation and by syntagms. Also, Atha, when it says now we are going to give the teaching about yoga, it's like whatever has been said until now, forget it. Now, wipe the board, wipe the slate, and now I'm going to present yoga. This is automatically expressing the authority of Patanjali to give the teaching and makes this text authoritative. This is not just another text. It says now, 
let's talk about yoga. Now let's talk business. You know, we are dealing with yoga here. So it's kind of, this text is authoritative and Patanjali says, I can talk about yoga. I can present yoga. And finally, the word atha in Sanskrit now, it is like a word calling for attention. Like in the Bible when the prophets say, listen, listen. And it's kind of when you say now, listen, we are going to talk about yoga. So this uh, is a word which is like, wake up. This is a message. This is an initiation. Of course, we can expand it in this day. Because if we say now, it's also like be in the present. Now is the power of now. It is simply bringing yoga to now. It's here and now. So there are so many meanings in the fact that Patanjali starts with this marvelous word, Atha, now. Let's talk about yoga. Yoga, of course, the second word. Yoga, the presentation of yoga, means, of course, union, mystic union in the Western uh, tradition and its technical meaning will be already given in the second sutra which is one of the most legendary sutras of this text and anushasana means instruction the instruction in yoga since the sutras are so short they are not meant to be a complete explanation of yoga they are just mnemonical devices as I told you but the word anushasana also means self-discipline and shows that one acquires control. It means a yoga which at the same time implies the solar aspect that one reaches control. So this says like you are solarizing your Ajna Chakra. This is about the third eye but it's about controlling Ajna Chakra. And of course finally Anushasana instructions when I say here are the exposition of yoga, the instructions, the explanations about yoga, this automatically means that we are talking about a tradition. This is not the invention of Patanjali, but Patanjali is talking about a tradition, a system. And the word Anushasana also means that. Therefore, uh, this first verse is extremely rich in meanings already, and it is a very powerful start for the text. The second sutra is perhaps the most remembered sutra of the Yoga Sutra. If you'll ever remember one sutra of the Yoga Sutra, I guess it will be this one. It is made of four words, unlike the previous one. And this is simply the Patanjali definition of yoga, which opens a chapter to a whole commentary, which I'll try to keep as short as possible. The Sanskrit verse is, of course, yoga... Chitta Vritti Niroda. Yoga is yoga. Chitta briefly is the mind. Vritti is the movements of the mind. I'll explain. And Niroda means stopping, arresting, freezing. And therefore Patanjali says yoga. He said now I'm going to give the instruction about yoga. Sec second point. Yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind. It is the restraint of the vrittis, of the mental fluctuations, which basically says, yoga, uh, Patanjali says, yoga means to be able to stop your mind, which is a pretty confusing concept, because some people would believe that it's like putting the mind off. It's not really true. 
the explanation is much, much deeper than that. Let us look a little bit into the meanings of it. The word yoga is clear, is the name of the system. The first is chitta. What do they want to say through chitta? Chitta is made traditionally in India. The word chitta is translated as mind or consciousness, but these words, both in the Western tradition and when applied to Indian spirituality, are extremely, extremely vague. What does it mean, mind? It means intellect, it means senses, sensorial functions, imagination. What are we talking about? Therefore, remember that technically speaking, in Indian yoga, Chitta is a pretty clear name. Uh, Chitta is made, they say, and I'm going to explain that, from the so-called Manas, Ahamkara and Buddhi. These are three components of the mind, which mean the following things. The human mind has been divided in these parts. We are having a part of the mind which receives the input of the senses, plus some input from imagination, memory, recollection, and so on. This is manas. Therefore, manas is defined usually as the sensory mind, the mind dependent on the senses. That's why when you say manas, you usually say indriyas. If you remember day three in yoga, in the first month, indriya means the senses, the five senses, basically, which pick up the information. So manas and indriyas are the lower part of the mind, the one which looks and analyzes the world. Then we are having the buddhi, which is, I'm jumping to the third one for a specific reason, which is the intellect. This is the function which analyzes, thinks, conceptualizes, is the higher intellectual part. So for example, I'll give you a, a typical example given in Patanjala literature of this. And finally, ahamkara is the sense of the I. How does all this relate to me? Ahamkara is like the ego of my mind. My mind wants to feel that it's I, and therefore it says uh, what is I, what is not I, and so on. Here is an example. Let's suppose that you are seeing, for example, an elephant. The senses look at the elephant, and they see that it's a big thing with whatever characteristics, tusks and big ears and whatever, and it's moving this way and that way. So the senses, especially the visual sense, but maybe other senses participate into this, hearing and smell and vibration in the ground and so on, they give you input about a big thing coming your way. Then the buddhi, the intellect, comes in and says, oh, this big thing with tusks and ears and looking like a gigantic thing is an elephant. The intellect recognizes it and conceptualizes and says this is an elephant. It has identified it. And then Ahamkara, the ego, comes in and says what relationship is between this elephant and me? Is it attacking me? Oh boy. So it's kind of it's establishing is, is this I or not I and what is its relationship with me? Because somebody can say, ah, oh, there's an elephant. And then the mind says, so what? But it has nothing to do with me. But Ahamkara puts it always in relationship with me, if there is anything important about it or not. So these are parts of the mind. There is a subtle psychology here. Some of these things are related to the subconscious mind already. I'm not going into this. These three parts of the mind, they are called Antakkarana, the inner apparatus, 
the inner mechanism of the mind. Remember because they have an importance at some part of the yoga psychology. Manas, Ahamkara and Buddhi, the three parts of the mind. Here in the beginning it's too early to go in their functioning. You'll see that later Patanjali comes to it and starts playing with them and kind of uh, making a technology out of this. This chitta, which is the mind, is sometimes translated as consciousness as well. But this is just on account on the regular person's identification with the mind. Which simply means when persons say who I am, they identify with their mind. They think that they are the mind. And that is why when we define the level of consciousness of a normal person, of an ordinary person, we're actually defining the level of their mind because they are or actually they believe that they are, and they behave as if they were their mind. And therefore, chitta, or the mind, is interpreted by most people as being their consciousness. For most people, their mind is the deepest place where they can go into themselves. They can go into their mind, into their manas, buddhi, and manas, ahamkara, and even buddhi, and for them that's like the depth. But you should be warned, of course, and that's elementary for those who do yoga, that there is, so to speak, a consciousness beyond consciousness. That the real consciousness is not the mind. The real consciousness is way beyond that. It is what Patanjali here calls Purusha, what we call Atman or the self, and that is not Chitta. That is why we'll discover that this Chitta is sometimes an obstacle to discovering what uh, yoga and what the being is. And that is why this chitta needs to be arrested. Sometimes it needs to be switched off because it is just a disturbance. Okay, so here it is. I have even encountered an opinion of, I think, Swami Satyananda of Bihar School of Yoga who was even defining, saying that actually if you have the combination between Atman, which is the background of consciousness, plus chitta, which is this manifested consciousness, the mind, the elements of prakriti, then atman plus chitta, he said, equal jiva, the living being. The living being is nothing else but a combination of atman, which is like zero, the void, the background, plus chitta. Chitta appears obvious, and it makes that atman plus chitta appears as an individual being, as jiva, whose essence is, of course, the jivatma, the soul of the human being. Now, the second word used here, besides chitta, this aspect of the mind, is vritti. This is a very, very interesting word, and actually the use of Patanjali here opens a lot of things. Vritti, the waves of thought, these movements of the mind, Let's compare the mind with an ocean, with a lake on the surface of which there are ripples. These ripples on the ocean of the mind, which means the thoughts, the ideas, the perceptions, the memories, the emotions, the movements of the mind, are called here vrittis, which in Sanskrit language, vritti means actually whirls or whirlpools. It's like water eddying into, an, into a whirl. Therefore, it's funny why would they not call it undulations, vibrations, ripples, or some other image? And why would they call the movements of the mind vrittis, whirls, 
What is whirling there? This is a very important concept. The secret explanation of this is related both with the chakras and with the human energy system. The yogis have discovered that most of these thrills and throbs which pulsate in the human energy system and therefore in the astral body and in the mental body, in the mind as well, they have the appearance of whirls. That means when a thought is moving through your aura, an emotion, a thought, something, it moves mostly like a whirl. It creates like a tornado, like a small vortex, like a whirl in the aura. I am reminding that in the very first day of yoga, when you have learned about the chakras, we have been drawing on the board the chakra for you, and we have said it's like a daisy wheel with spokes, and those spokes are like wires, and then the yoga teacher is drawing around one of those spokes a whirl, like a spiral, like a wire coiling around that spoke, showing that energy is coming in and out of the spokes. Because funny enough, the yogis who have been clairvoyant, they have seen that when the spokes work, they work like coils. It's like the energy is like a whirl around the spoke. So imagine like you are having this jack-in-the-box type of coils in each of the spokes of the chakras, and it makes boing out. It's like each spoke, on each spoke, the energy emerges or comes in on some in some spiraling way. Therefore, this is a great secret which can help you a lot in the visualization when you do pranayama, visualization, colors and others. If you understand the fact that the typical energy movements in the aura are based on this pattern. This makes that in nature most forces manifest as worlds and that is why the students in energy, they have discovered that spirals are the fundamental pattern of nature. Starting from atomic patterns and finishing with the galaxies and going through the shells of the seashells in the ocean, everything is, bu is built on the principle of spirals. The people from the macrobiotics, they have whole theories about how the human fetus is, a, is like a spiral in the womb of the mother and everything, even the way your fingers are growing when you are a fetus inside the womb of your mother and everything is just a spiral, it's just an unfolding spiral. It's like everything in this universe is spirals because the manifestation of the energies is a spiral and of course I hope you realize that those spirals are either clockwise or counterclockwise, which means they ultimately reduce everything to yin and yang, to clockwise and counterclockwise. This whole universe is just an interplay of yin and yang, which means an interplay of energies whirling clockwise or counterclockwise, and therefore starting from the DNA of the human being and up till the galaxies, Everything is a spiraling energy. And therefore, in the aura, this also appears. You should see there are wonderful representations in Japan, and even there are even representations in Christianity and so on, which show the centers of force of the human beings represented as spirals. Like there is a spiral around the belly button, and it is made in such a way that the clothes are put in such a way that the folds of the clothes, they represent a spiral, like everything is centered 
let's say in Japanese tradition, around the hara of one person. And therefore, uh, I'm calling your attention on the fact that here, this sentence of Patanjali is not just a colorful poetic expression, but it expresses a very fundamental truth about how the energy moves in the aura. The yogis looking upon people's astral body and mental body have seen there a lot of worlds which are corresponding to things in our body and at the same time which are the movements of energy. It is for this reason, if you want just a very, uh, uh, an almost hilarious application of this, that many yogis believe that if your hair is curly, it means that your mind field around your head is very agitated with thoughts. And that is why some yoga gurus believe that disciples who have curly hair, they are more agitated in their mind than disciples who have a flat hair, a plain hair, because curly in the hair comes because of that. Of course, that is related to Ayurvedic constitution and with a lot of other things, but nevertheless they believe that there is something to do with the mind field, that the mind field is full of, exactly like your hair is curly, your brain is curly, so to speak. Or better said, your astral body and your mental body is curly, which means it is like an ocean with a very agitated surface, with a lot of eddies on it, and usually people who have such a structure, they need to calm down a lot, because they think too much, simply. They are too much agitated. Vyasa already mentions here, and this is very, very <coughs> important later, as you will see, the commentator Vyasa already mentions here, uh, oh, I forgot to say, by the way, of this with the Vritis, just to conclude that, that even the spokes of the chakras are called Vritis, the Shat Chakra Nirupana, and other texts when they speak about the chakras, and they want to dis describe the petals, the different spokes, the petals in Sanskrit are called vrittis, the vrittis of the chakras, which means the basic thoughts, the basic mind states, the basic emotions, or whatever you want to call them, related to each chakra. The spokes are actually vrittis, whirls. They are whirling, which shows something about the way the energy moves in the nadis, and generally through the human system. Here, uh, Vyasa already mentions, and I will mention it also so as to get your mind used to it, a very important thing which comes later into action, that uh, there are these vrittis of the mind, they are actually of five types. There exist five basic states of mind. Those of you who are more advanced in our yoga courses have received a small text about the five basic states of mind, as in yoga, it's part of our instruction, and you should be able to recognize them now that I mention them. The mind can be restless, dull, or infatuated, like uh, bedazzled, or rather said, stupefied, that's a better word, distracted, focused, and finally stopped, or controlled, arrested, restrained, if you prefer. These states of mind are related with the levels of the first five chakras, and they actually are related with the gunas, and they represent the states of evolution of the mind. The restless, agitated mind, full of desires, 
is dominated by rajas and by what Bhagavad Gita calls the demonic temperament and it's permanently agitated. The dull, stupefied one is the mind dominated by tap, tamas, the mind which is uh, dark and full of sloth and which is therefore dominated by tamas and by the infernal regions. The mind which is distracted is already started having some sattva in it and this is already specific to the devas. The gods are in a distracted state of mind because they are having a great time and this is where yoga starts already. Every one of you who is trying to do some meditation or some concentration of the mind is on the right path but a bit distracted. Then with practice there comes the focused state of mind which is the state of the advanced practitioners who can focus their mind for a while. And finally the arrested or the restrained mind, the one which has become yoga, is the state of mind of the enlightened beings, is the state of mind in the state of yoga which denotes already a certain form of perfection in practice. This restraint is actually the expression, an expression of sattva, of serenity, of calmness, of control. And actually the text describes this niroda. What does it mean to restrain the mind? The text describes it later by using actually, uh, a by comparing it with the resorption of the gunas. Because in the lower ones you have rajas and tamas, the inferior gunas. Then you have more and more sattva. The fully controlled one is sattva. And then niroda, the last one, is like beyond the gunas. So the gunas have been transcended. That is why it's like a resorption of the gunas. It's like the, it's like the carpet of the gunas is rolled back. It's resorbed. It's dematerialized. And this resorption of the gunas means actually nothing but laya. Laya is dissolution or dissolving in this way. And this is very important because in this way you can see from a tantric yoga standpoint, the way we study here from the standpoint of energy, what is happening with the mind. The mind which is the most distracted or slothful, uh, stupefied, the mind which is full of rajas and tamas, is like not laya, it is like completely expressed. And then the more you do laya, laya yoga with the chakras, laya yoga with mantras, laya yoga of different kinds, you are reaching to a state of dissolution in which actually the gunas are dissolving and resorbing and the mind is going from inferior states to more and more focused and clear states until it can reach the state of perfection. That is why Laya Yoga conceptually follows exactly the concept of Patanjali that the mind is going towards this arresting. The arresting of the vrittis of the mind means actually a state of Laya, a state of dissolution, so the two systems correspond very well from this standpoint. Therefore, don't forget that Niroda can be described as plenum. This is the problem. Most people interpret this definition of Patanjali from the standpoint of Buddhism, that it means like Nirvana, wiping out. Oh, Patanjali has said that yoga means the arresting of the mind, which means you should stop the mind. 
Wait a second, what is this stopping of the mind? This stopping of the mind, it means that the mind reaches laya. The mind dissolves. In what does the mind dissolve? The mind dissolves in the ocean of the universal mind. And therefore this dissolving, this niroda, actually means stopping because the mind becomes one with the ocean. Therefore it's not only expressible as void, that the mind should turn to nothing, to zero, but it is also meaning that the mind turns to everything, to plenum. And therefore, this is very difficult to understand because Patanjali does not say destroy the mind. Patanjali says dissolve the mind in the ocean of the universal mind so that it becomes fixed, so that it becomes arrested for a limited period of time, of course. And that is why, remember that this is not only about void, it's about full. The extremely void is the extremely full. Most people don't understand, but there is even a common day proverb which says the extremes touch each other. The extremes are the same. It's like a circle which touches its ends somewhere at the infinite. Extremely dark is exactly the same as extremely bright. If, for example, in this room somebody would turn on a light which would have the intensity of the blazing sun, all of you would be completely blinded and unable to see anything because of the intensity of that light. And therefore, for you, it would be exactly the same as if this room would be in absolute darkness, in zero light, because everything would become completely undifferentiated one way or the other. That's why extreme light gives the same effect with extreme darkness. They touch, they rejoin at the end of the scale. That is why, for example, when something is extremely cold, it burns you. You feel a burning sensation from something which is extremely cold. Cold feels like hot as well. It's just extremes which touch each other. And you can be frostbitten and it manifests physiologically exactly as burns. A frostbite is as difficult to heal as a burn mark because both of them destroy the tissues in the same way and they interact with the etheric body and so on. Remember that the extremes are the same ultimately. And therefore, the zero mind means 100% mind. It's the same. When the mind calms down, it becomes everything. And that is why this interpretation that you are supposed to just stop the mind by switching it down to zero is only half of the image. But the other half simply says, and that's the tantric representation, that the mind is actually becoming infinite that the mind is sinking and dissolving in the ocean of the universal mind. That's the effect energetically. The comparison, uh, we're talking about the restraint of the mind. Comparing chitta, this mind, for some people consciousness, to a lake. Atman then, Purusha, the real self, is like the bottom of that lake. And the waves on the surface of the lake, the agitation and the impurity of the lake, makes it impossible to see the bottom. You can see the bottom of the lake only in the moment when the water is crystal clear and completely calm. Then you can see through. Therefore, it is exactly like the mind interferes between us and the experience, and especially the surface of the mind agitated by ripples and waves. And that is why to perceive the self and to be the self, it is important to clarify the mind. This has been given in so many other ways 
and I'll make references to them when we come there. But all in all, uh, remember that uh, the arresting of the mind is a very, very technical concept, which does not mean that you should become brain dead or without mind. It means something else, as I have tried to explain. A few more minutes to conclude what has been said here. The third out of four words, Tada Drashtuhu Svarupe Avashtanam. It means the following, then the perceiver, the seer, which is nothing else but Atman, the real consciousness, stands in its own essential nature. It has been said, yoga is the restraint of the fluctuations of the mind. Then, the seer, the Atman, stands in its own essential nature. It's like Atman is not disturbed. The mind is a blur, is a disturbance. You are going to see immediately how that works. So basically, we say that self-realization can occur only when these chitta vrittis, these worlds of the mind, cease their activity, even for five minutes or for fifty minutes, when the mind or chitta is no longer affected by the play of the three gunas, because remember, the mind becomes fixed when it's outside of the gunas. The gunas keep agitating it. That's why the power which is at the level of the mind is that of the gunas, and that is why in Raja Yoga, in the Patanjali Yoga, dealing with the gunas is very important. And therefore, the mind is not affected by the gunas, it is not affected by varying moods, by very, very impulses, and therefore there is no longer a feeling of identification with the objective world, because this is what is happening. This perceiver, this seer, is explained by Vyasa in a wonderful Kashmir Shaivistic-like uh, formulation as Chit Shakti, therefore self-awareness, or Vimarsha, uh, which is of Shiva Shakti consciousness, as, it, as presented by Kashmir Shaivism. So this sutra continues saying, when the vibrations of the mind have been stopped, even for a while, then the only thing which shines, the only thing which is itself, is the perceiver, the Atman, the subject, if you prefer, the I am, which stands in its own essential nature. For a short, brief moment, the ocean, the water doesn't move on the lake, and suddenly you can see through the essential nature of the self. And the next sutra, which concludes this subject, and after which Patanjali goes deeper into some practical things, simply uses another uh, three words, which are vritti, sarupiya, mitaratara, which says, or else, it identifies with, which means it takes the shape, literally it assumes the shape, but it means it identifies in psychological language, with the modifications of the mind, which simply says, try to imagine like this, imagine that the whole of reality, that we are having a lake, which is actually the bottom of the lake, is a piece of glass. And beyond that piece of glass is the cosmic void. There is nothing. You look into the lake, and you cannot see the glass, because it's transparent. The void, this sheet, which is 
thin as infinitesimally thin and transparent is invisible. Therefore, we can never see Atman because Atman cannot be an object. Atman is the subject. But that's another approach to it. And therefore, all we see is the undulations of the water. That's why when the water stops, then you can see through. But if the water moves, then automatically you cannot see anything. It, imagine in an abstract way that Atman is like the number zero. The number zero, which it is, of course, it's Shunya. Zero in Sanskrit means Shunya, which means void. The number zero, which is added to any other number, gives the same number. Zero plus seven equals seven. So when you see seven, you can never see the zero. But the zero is always contained in the seven. In everything there is Atman, there is the self. Because without the self, the universe would have no support. And therefore, there is always a background. But that background is so discreet, it is so transparent, that you never see it because it's like zero. And you always ignore that zero. Actually, that zero is the whole point. And if there is any agitation, you look at the seven, but you don't look at the zero. For you, the seven is important, but the zero is not important, while the zero, the background void, the emptiness, is actually the support of all the reality in the universe, the Atman, the Purusha. <clears throat> Else, we can say, the perceiver, this Atman, the pure consciousness, <clears throat> is influenced by different crystal, borrows the reddish hue of a rose when, the, when placed near it. It is a superimposition. You take crystal and put it near a rose, and the crystal seems to be pink or reddish, but the crystal taken separate, is transparent, it has no color. It borrows the color of everything put near it. In the same way, Atman, it borrows the color of the mind. The mind is the one which gives colors, like a kaleidoscopic game. But the light is coming from Atman, and that light has no color. It is only the filter of the mind which gives the colors, and this distracts our attention. And that is why you have an Atman, but because you have a mind superimposed on that Atman, you all the time see the effects of the mind. What you see is the ripples on the surface and not this invisible background, this invisible bottom. It is exactly like you identify with an actor in a film. You go to a movie and you identify with that actor. And it's exactly like seeing a movie. It's like you get a crystal colored by a rose or by a piece of cloth. You put a red piece of cloth under a crystal, and the crystal looks reddish. You go to a movie, and you become James Bond, or something like this. You, it's Your Atman is like a monkey. It can take almost any personality and anything, and it always borrows the mind of everything else. And that is why we can be angry, we can be peaceful, we can be generous, we can be in all these states of mind. Who am I? Because my mind is going in all the direction. Now it's red, now it's blue, now it's green, now it's this. The color keeps changing, but the background does not change. And therefore the text says, else, if the mind has not stopped and the self doesn't stand by itself, else, it, this seer, the Atman, it identifies with the modifications of the mind. The, the self tends to become the mind. It simply falls into identification. 
we are all familiar with this type of wrong identification. When we watch a movie, film, or a stage play, we tend to identify ourselves with that, with the character that is portrayed and experience corresponding emotions of sorrow, joy, fear, uh, and likes, dislikes, and so on. In the same way, Purusha, or Atman, if you want, is only a witnessing consciousness that, but it has forgotten its true nature and is identifying non-stop with the mind and its patterns or modifications to such an extent that it is very difficult for it to extricate itself and to stand alone. And that is why it's necessary to stop the mind from time to time and to calm down the mind, because only then you can see who you are without the mind, without all those uh, hues of color which come from the mind. All the the, these are all the images in a mirror or in the water. The Buddhist masters, especially the Zen ones, they say it's like a reflection in a mirror. The mirror never changes, but if there is dust on the mirror, then automatically the reflection is corrupted. The pure spirit is like a clean mirror. So they simply say, clean the mirror of your mind, and then you see, because there is nothing there to be seen. It's a clear mirror. The same thing with the Zen masters use images with the reflections in the water. You see the reflection of the moon in the water, but is it the water or is it the moon that you are seeing? So in this way, <coughs> there are a lot of parables to show exactly this mystery of reflection, that we see all the time the reflection, because the mind creates this reflection, but we do not see the original thing, which needs calmness, which needs this peace to be seen. This is also, I hope you realize, the root cause of all attachment. The human beings, the human beings are plagued by attachment. So this is the very root cause of attachment. We get attached to this, the mind is a monkey which gets hypnotized and becomes this or that. And then if we like it or dislike it, we become attached to that. And this is how we I am a powerful person. I am a weak person. I am simply attached to some patterns of the mind which become familiar to me. This is therefore the mystery of the wrong identification.